Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we get the inside take from actors, artists, and creators on their work, their career, and the things they obsess about. I'm your host, Connie Guillermo, and today's guest is an actor whose movies I own on VHS and DVD. They include Ruthless People, A League of Their Own, While You Were Sleeping, Sleepless in Seattle, Lake Placid, and Casper. From his turn as a sort of pirate in the epic sci-fi comedy Spaceballs, to his role as the kick-ass president of the United States on Independence Day, Bill Pullman is one of the most recognizable actors in the world, something he credits to his ability to be the American everyman. And I mean that in a really good Jimmy Stewart kind of way. He currently stars in USA Network's crime drama series, The Sinner. He plays a slightly quirky, very human police detective named Harry Ambrose. The Sinner just aired the end of season three, but you can watch season one and two on Netflix. A quick note, because of COVID-19 and shelter in place, our conversation was recorded over Zoom. I was in Silicon Valley, and Bill spoke with me from a creative space he shares with his kids in Los Angeles. So be prepared for a few audio glitches. So let me start by asking you, first of all, how are you? How are you handling social distancing and home quarantine? Are you safe? What's going on with you? Yeah, I think, you know, everybody's uh, putting it together, what it is to do your part, you know? So I'm doing my part um, with uh, masks and gloves and things and when I'm uh, out and needing to go out, but essentially staying home and uh, trying to get it, get it all done. All right, you. And, and can I ask, where are you? Where are we talking to you from? Well, this right now is a, uh, is a, a building that was built in 1921 as a commercial building. And then it fell into great disrepair. And the love, my family and I uh, are going to pour into this has got to be huge because it's got a long way to go. But we're um, all three of my kids are artists and they all, um, I thought they would, I didn't know, but then they ended up all living in LA and uh, they need uh, places to do their art and everything. So we're going to convert this into a live workspace for artists. Congratulations on that. That's wonderful. All right. So I said in my introduction there that you've been in a lot of movies and that you're very uh, well known and well recognized. And somebody has asked you this in the past, of course, and your answer was, I think I'm always recognized, quote, as an American. There's something about the characters I've played, whether they're tortured, heroic, confused, troubled, all those things. It feels like there's some aspect, some fiber of them that feels very American. I don't know what that is, but there is some larger connection to what the idea of the country is. So can you talk about that? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be American to you? And how does that translate into the parts that you're chosen to play? What I was thinking about so is, is exactly uh, the, the nuanced version of what it, what it is to be from a country that has, you know, had been the, has been the superpower of the world and uh, has come together um, with a diversity of backgrounds, uh, people coming from all over the world to come to find what this American dream is, um, laced inside this beautiful idea is the, some realities of how uh, we've been more complicated than we like to own up to sometimes. And uh, that are some of our dark side, I think, can seep in and uh, is something that is also part of the journey of being an artist in America is uh, recognizing that that 
um, complication exists. So maybe that's what I was referring to. Well, I think that makes sense in your current role. But before we talk about that, let me take you back to maybe the opposite of that, which is Spaceballs, <laughs> in which you play kind of space pirate, uh, you know, the, uh, the even cheekier version of the hand solo than people can imagine. And I read a story, tell me if it's true, that you didn't even audition for the role, that Mel Brooks and his wife Anne Bancroft saw you in a play, came up to you and offered you the role, and that Mel Brooks told you, um, I tried to go for a Tom, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, and I got a bill. Is that true? Tell us yeah, about that. Doesn't it? it? It has the rhythm of Mel Brooks, doesn't it? I tried for a Tom, I couldn't get a Tom, I got a bill. Just the, but he, um, uh, I didn't have to audition. Um, I think it was already on the, in play that I might be uh, offered the part, and uh, he and Anne came down to see a play that I was doing. Uh, at that time, I w uh, was in uh, the Los Angeles Theater Center in downtown L.A. doing a very obscure Belgian pageant drama, Barabbas, by Michel de Gelderode. And, um, but we were doing a very adventurous version of it. Uh, the person playing Jesus was a woman, and she had her head shaved. So this was avant-garde and uh, was good to know that Mel and Ann got a lot out of it and it didn't dissuade them from hiring me for Lone Star. When you read the script for Spaceballs, did you think, genius, this is gonna be a classic? <laughs> you know, I was so overwhelmed. Uh, you know, I was so glad to be invited to the party and, you know, kind of had a steep learning curve about all this great um, talent that Mel brings with him with his writing partners and people that he's worked with for a long time. And uh, I was just so happy about the present moment. I hardly projected about the future. Um, in your mind, who was Lonestar? What were you doing? Who were you playing? Like, obviously, People have dissected this movie. It is a cult classic. There's no question. I mean, we talk about ludicrous speed. A lot of people do. Even Tesla has a mode of their electric car called ludicrous speed. Um, yeah, but like when you approached it, again, I know that it was very early in your career. What, like, what were you thinking? Are, first of all, are you a huge sci-fi fan? You know, I've always been um, like the Ray Badbury version of sci-fi has been attractive to me, but uh, I haven't really been a student of it. And, uh, and I didn't grow up really um, uh, enamored of the long sagas. In fact, I hadn't seen Star Wars when we did Spaceballs. Just my own ignorance and um, my head was in the sand. I just missed that whole journey. Um, and uh, so my idea of doing uh, a version of Han Solo, really, I wasn't interested in doing some kind of parody anyway. So I didn't rush out and try to see it. But this was, it was kind of before VHS. So you couldn't just rush out and see it. 
uh, Star Wars. And, um, but I, I uh, decided that I could get enough from Mel and uh, he had quite a bit to say about what they thought about when they crafted Lone Star. So I, th I thought I had a pretty good resource in Mel Brooks. Favorite moment from the set or from that favorite line? Anything that you can tell us about that? Uh, you know, I think I, one of the things I really liked about uh, working with Mel was uh, how good he was at doing uh, everybody else's part. So when we, I was rehearsing with Daphne Zuniga, you know, to do that, uh, the scenes we had, uh, I really came to love his line readings. For me, you know, as a Lone Star, he would do line readings and do line readings for her. You know, that's supposed to, actors are supposed to be pretty sensitive about that. Hey, this is my turf, don't be telling me how to deliver the line. But Mel can do that so beautifully, you know, it's not exactly what he wants you to do. It's like a paraphrase, but you get the essence of it. And I came to just love every time he did the Druish Princess. <laughs> so when we went to shoot all those scenes out in the desert, it was as exotic as it could be, you know, to be out there in the Yuma, Arizona. And uh, we were taking dune buggies out to, you know, to shoot. And we had little people riding on these dune buggies with us out to get to set. And that was crazy good. And then to get out there and have Mel be um, prompting us with his impersonations, I think was some of them. I just it was so tickled. But I also, I really remembered some of my favorite moments were with John Candy you know, who was such a, he was a seasoned pro at that point, and that was my second movie, and he took me under his wing. He is a, was a big bear of a beautiful human being, and he made me feel really comfortable on the set. And uh, I think those scenes we had when we were improvising and finding our, you know, give me some paw and, you know, figuring out how we were going to do that um, inside this Winnebago on a soundstage uh, was uh, some of my favorite moments. Um, in addition to uh, that iconic role, you've also played an American president, actually twice, once in Independence Day, but also in a sitcom, uh, 1600 Pen. What does it take to play a president? Any acting tips that you want to share? Well, I remember when I, I uh, uh, was, they were talking to me about doing the part, I, um, I was a little trepidatious. Well, first when they offered it to me, I hadn't read the script. They said, they want you to play the president. And I said, is this a comedy? Because I, I thought up until then there was, you know, most times uh, presidents are uh, at that point were either shot over their backs so you didn't really see their faces. You know, they were kind of <clears throat> somehow anonymous or something, or it was a, funny version of a thing. No, 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 he's actually heroic. So I got to the, started talking to Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, the director, and um, 
I tend to think of the essence of a president in a room means that everybody has to triangulate with that person, whether the president is talking or not, and other people are talking, they must always have a third point of the triangle, which is the president. Well, you were very heroic. I mean, I think I described you earlier as kick-ass. You were the kick-ass president who gets up in the plane. You don't just say what you're going to do. You follow through as well. Fighter pilot, you know, and a uh, little low on pilots. You know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's a good thing that I uh, didn't have to go into the healthcare business and uh, suddenly treat people because that would have been harder than it was to get into an F-18 and go fight aliens. Um, what are you afraid of? Uh, aliens? Uh, obviously, you battled them in a few movies. You've taken on some very serious roles. Inner demons, external demons. What is Bill Pullman afraid of? Uh, you know, it's more of an in, internal degradation. You know, that there is some kind of uh, collective consciousness uh, and to be frank with you, it's about our country. Uh, I think our, I've, I think I most grieve and most fear this possibility that we as a civilization have peaked and we're beginning to degrade. Uh, and in my optimistic days, I don't believe that. But when I do feel fearful, it's when a little intimation of that shows its head. Are you more half glass full or half glass empty these days? Well, I think on my good days with the right amount of coffee, I'm uh, half full. Um, and uh, on my other dark days, I think um, it's a great relief to, you know, sometimes it's uh, when you see it's half empty, you realize that your expectations aren't going to be as high and maybe you'll be able to make half empty. And uh, that's the best you can do. Well, well, let me get on to a different topic. And that is, I, I've read as you've talked about many times that you lost your sense of smell when you were very young after an accident. And so I need to ask you, are you the person in your house that cuts all the onions? <laughs> Yeah, I am. They do. I, they do give me little assignments because I, I lost my sense of smell. Um, definitely, it was great when our kids were in diapers. I had a very clear uh, purpose and usefulness then. Um, and now I, uh, I think it's good to be vulnerable, like with my sons and my daughter to. For me to say, I need you to tell me whether you smell gas or not, you know, and that they have to watch out for me because I always watch out for them, you know, but there's these, this vulnerability, which uh, I think allows them to see me in a different light, I guess. So you are a fruit farmer and you have uh, some orchards. Is that still true? And again, I read that you're, it's part of your act local, think global, but also so that you can really enjoy and taste fresh fruit. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I, you know, California, you know it. Uh, it's Silicon Valley also. It's got the same potential for growing things that are, but down here in Southern California, the Mediterranean climate, the temperate climate is just astounding to me being a kid from cold Western New York state. And when I first ate a warm orange ripened by the sun off a tree in 1985, I started this passion for fruit and, uh, kind of grew through having my own orchard, which I've terraced up the hillsides behind the house and having a lot of different varieties of fruit so that I can have fruit, fresh fruit all year round now, which is possible in this climate. And uh, about 10 years ago, my wife Tamara and I started in a community initiative called Hollywood Orchard. And we uh, worked with our neighbors to glean fruit from trees that weren't being picked, which other parts of the country can't believe it, that, that people would have a fruit tree in the yard and not pick it. But um, that's the situation we're in. And um, it's been a great way for neighbors to get together. Fruit is very non-political. And for, there's a, quite a few people in our uh, area in, in Hollywood that uh, aren't part of a school because they don't have kids and they're not part of a church. And so it gives them community. And uh, so we have pop-up kitchens and pick picking kitchens, we call them, and uh, glean fruit from trees. Uh, um, this January, there were uh, buses of school kids from South LA that came up and joined in on the whole thing. So um, I think uh, it's been a good, Good journey, and I'm always glad that I can be connected to the earth. So let, let me go back to your acting and talk about, um, you play a detective in The Sinner, but actually there's another detective that I loved that you played, uh, Dara Zero, who's been billed as the world's most private, private detective, so private that you had your assistant front for you and I it's based on a Sherlock Holmes um, short story um, Scandal in Bohemia which is very famous it's the third uh, home story it introduces the world to Irene Adler a character that I think is great but um, so you played a detective there so can you talk about that detective and then we'll move into the center and talk about the detective you play in the center but Daryl Zero talk about him and who he was to you that was a really um a, a journey making that movie was uh, a real pleasure because Jake Kasdan, who wrote it and directed it, son of Larry Kasdan, I met when he was 13 years old and uh, on the set of External Tourist. And I really found him the extraordinary person. And uh, then when I did uh, Wyatt Earp, Jake was doing a documentary about the making of. And so, um, Tom Sizemore and I were the uh, Masterson brothers and we came and went quite a bit. So we were kicking around craft service quite a bit. And uh, Jake, you know, said, I, I, it was 19 at the time. He said, I'd like to write a script for you. I said, oh, really? Well, that's great. And we'll see what happens, you know, I thought. And sure enough, when he was 21, the script came up and was the most amazing character, Daryl Zero, agoraphobic private detective, fear of the marketplace, 
just locked away with um, social distancing in an early um, psychotic version of it. But, um, and uh, he was fronted, yeah, by uh, Ben Stiller's character who uh, was uh, able to do the deals and everything. And the most treacherous thing for someone who's locked away looking to not expose their identity to the outside world is to fall in love. And that's his Achilles heel in this story. Okay, so he's a brilliant genius. I mean, classic armchair detective, if you will, because he's afraid to leave his home. And now we move to The Sinner, in which you play a character who is actually very different from the character as written in the book on which it's based. You've developed the character, uh, um, Harry, that detective in The Sinner. Who is he to you, and how did you approach that role? Well, you know, it was uh, Derek Simons, who is the showrunner on it, who was um, sculpt scripting the pilot, um, approached me, and uh, he had this idea that it would be uh, interesting to collaborate together on this. And uh, he told me that the character in the German novel that it was uh, loosely based on, really my character was not fundamental to the story. And, uh, <clears throat> but he existed, but he wasn't fundamental. So it gave us a chance to have a clean palette. And uh, there were some instincts that Derek had already shaped up with the pilot about Harry that um, were really, enticing to me. One was his love of nature, which is biophilia, and uh, his concern about ecology as he sees it uh, evinced in the natural world under stress. And uh, that's an aspect of it. The fact that he's compartmentalized quite a bit uh, and Often his right hand won't admit what his left hand is doing. And uh, he's, he's uh, someone who really has managed to go through 60 plus years of his life without a lot of um, um, self-awareness. No, a, a fear of introspection in a way. And uh, yet knowing that, his, that he's a marked man, that there's, there's there's a lot that could be discovered about him, a lot that he's keeping secret as he goes to reveal secrets that other people have. He also is interesting to me in that he's not just about the how something is done, it's the why, right? I mean, that's from the get-go in the first episode, the way that he thinks he's dogged, he's persistent. We won't get into all of his uh, peculiarities because that is part of the joy of watching uh, you perform through the three seasons. But um, how, how similar or dissimilar in the way he thinks through problems is he to you? Some days I'm a little bit more uh, vul vulnerable sometimes, defensive sometimes, defended sometimes, and that's more like Harry Ambrose than uh, other times. I started by our conversation by mentioning you've been in so many so many movies, a brilliant career. And like I said, I'm not kidding when I say I own a lot of your movies on VHS because 
Uh, we, I think I've seen Casper more times than I can count, but just curious of all the roles that you've played, is there somebody who you come back to in your mind? I mean, I, I mentioned a handful of films here, but I mean, there's over 25 uh, movies that I can call out here. Yeah. Yeah. I always curious about that, Casper. That's so potent to women older than you and younger who were in that when they saw it, and it seems to go through the generations now, where that sense of what it is to for Christina Ricci's character to be kind of some days a girl and some days a woman. And that kind of somehow coming of age, I guess, is what I've heard from other women. I don't know if you feel that way, but... My kids were really into it. Uh, they loved that Casper was a friendly ghost. You know, kids are told, they don't come into the world thinking ghosts are good or bad, right? They hear stories and ghost stories are supposed to be about bad ghosts, but Casper is not. And you play the quintessential dad in that uh, movie. And so I think that's why it was very popular with kids because it breaks preconceived notions of even what a ghost is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. that um, as I mentioned, is a tech site. Are you a techie? Do you have a lot of, do you use a lot of tech? I mean, we're talking over uh, video conferencing. So thank you to the world of technology for giving us this moment. But what about you? It so happens that I am working on something that I'm quite obsessed by that does involve more tech than I think I've ever encountered or felt comfortable relying on before. And uh, it stems from a project that I did about a, an American painter called uh, Charlie Russell, and who was from Montana. And he went, or he, he made his way to Montana when he was 16 in, 19, in 1880, and was a cowboy for a while, self-taught artist who by 1919 was the highest paid artist in America. And his paintings are nostalgic. And they were, uh, they are capturing a, a, the American West and in a way kind of embodied the, the, what the mythic levels of the West are. And uh, people like John Ford said they based five of his movies on things that uh, he got from the composition and everything of Charlie Russell. And in 1913, Charlie Russell had an exhibit in New York City of his paintings that everybody just was so aching for what was lost, the West, that they, that their experience of the paintings were vivid. And I'm working on a solo performance piece about Charlie Russell and I had this thought that I could go to New York City. I got to know these tech guys in a kind of playhouse um, called Jump Into the Light on Orchard Street in Lower East Side. And it's basically a, arcade of lots of different experiences of this cutting edge stuff downstairs. And then upstairs they have a, their own laboratory where they're making things. And I, I proposed to them the idea of doing a workshop in which we used augmented reality to recreate this sensation of seeing nature in some way you hadn't, you, you feel like you'd lost a sense of awe about what the natural world was and <clears throat> what it was to kind of 
have just the jaw-dropping experience of walking into kind of a museum-like situation that replicated, you know, but over a hundred years later. So we did a thing called Redux, and it was a journey of looking at kind of re, uh, encountering um, the natural world through augmented reality. We were able to um, create a lot of animals that were 20 feet tall in the room that the audience could see uh, if they looked in one direction to watch it, this projection that we had done through Bluetooth on an iPad and look back and not see this 20-foot animal there. And we had an audience of about 40 people that I, I was the narrator, like an interlocutor, and we moved through these different areas using um, different uh, kinds of augmented reality that I collaborated with Mihao and Sky, these two real genius guys, and Pink, uh, one who's extremely talented. And um, we, we did uh, the other kind of more really wild eccentric thing that uh, was, was included in it was that we had this idea that, uh, or they told me they could recreate Charlie Russell's studio that exists in Montana if we could do a 360 scan of it, we could use it down in Orchard Street as part of this thing. So I went to <clears throat> Montana, I went to Great Falls, Montana, went to the museum, Charlie Russell Museum. I did it through Matterport and we did a 360 scan of this uh, log cabin studio that still exists where Charlie Russell created all this vivid portraits of the American West. And I, then we uploaded it to the guys in New York. And by the time I got back to New York, they had already kind of, a lot of it had to do with de-resing it in order to make it work for our purposes. We had an interior chamber. So we did it like three, 270, three walls that were exactly like Charlie Russell's studio. And they had worked out what they called a reality flashlight. And I could take this flashlight that was, I held it like a flashlight, but it, re, it was really something else taped to the end of a flashlight. But I could then take the audience, I could direct their attention by having a highlighted circle and the rest dimmed down. So we were in a, this uh, scanned version virtual version of uh, his studio, but I could run the flashlight over things on the, on the shelves and things that he had around there. And, and the audience, could, I could tell the story and be in control of what they looked at. So um, these were, this was the hugest adventure in tech that I've ever had. And it was in February that we did it. And, and we're wanting to, use it in, uh, in a bigger arena uh, with more people in different kinds of ways. But it was a great fun to experiment with all this stuff. Bill Pullman, you are a total tech geek. Look at you. <laughs> AR, and the great thing about it, uh, even if you do it as a one-man show at performance, you could film it in VR and we could all watch it from our home with gear, right? Yes, 
Yeah, well, you're at your home with gear. <laughs> I am one that's still not ready to sit in a room with everybody in an Oculus or something. You know, I find that dispiriting. But um, what I'm trying to do is figure out how I can use AR in a setting like a theater and do 270. I'm, I'm really uh, keen on that version of being surrounded by imagery and that we could, uh, we could kind of create an audience experience that's an amalgam with uh, AR. Well, I hope that comes to fruition because it sounds amazingly cool. But if there were ever a moment in time to do it in VR, this actually is that, this is that moment. Talk about your glass half full thinking about how to present art uh, today. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I think that, that uh, it's, it's so kind of uh, amazing to have this resource. Underneath it is the, is the need for good storytelling. You know, you can have tech wizardry uh, up the yin-yang, but if you don't have a good beginning and a good middle and a good end, and you don't have a crisis and you don't have an emotional touchstones to go through, you know, you don't, you can't sustain some of the technology that long, I, I learned, you know, so. Absolutely. Um. Bill Pullman, thank you very much for talking to us, telling us about your obsessions, sharing that you are the biggest tech geek in the world. I love it. And I hope that we get to see your AR vision brought to life in person, in studio in New York or in LA and have a fruit smoothie on the side. Really good to talk to you, Connie. Thanks again to Bill Pullman for chatting with us. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, take care.